So begin by setting a motivation. So a few days ago, one of our viewers on YouTube um, made a comment um, that I was looking to respond to. And the question was asking how, isn't the motivation to become a Buddha egotistical? Because it's aspiring to become a widely adored and great teacher who had a great impact and change on the course of history for many people. So isn't the motivation to be such a great being um, a negative motivation? And they, um, they made the link to companies like Google who, while they benefit others immensely through making the ease of access to knowledge very easy, but they still make a profit. So isn't that a corrupt motivation? And so the teachings that will, the chapters that we'll be looking at tonight, reviewing and approaching the Buddhist path, emphasize the importance of motivation for all that we do. And so, theoretically, you could aspire to become a Buddha because of wanting fame or respect or spiritual powers and so on. But will that motivation actually get you there? If you look at the vast internal transformation that an ordinary being has to undergo to become a Buddha, fulfilling the collections of merit and wisdom over three countless great eons, I'm not quite sure that a self-centered motivation will pull you through that. The difficulties of working with your mind, the afflictions, the wrapping of difficult situations. Rather, a motivation of great compassion where we're so deeply moved by the suffering of others that we wish to take responsibility for it and help all beings achieve the happiness that they can achieve. That can help us, motivate us to transform all adversity into the path and keep us working, working one step in front of the other on the path to full awakening. And in the section in chapter six about motivation, His Holiness says that for our spiritual practice to bear good results, Kindness, tolerance, and compassion for other sentient beings are essential. Practicing any spiritual path motivated by habitual self-absorption won't do, because that attitude is a principal cause for our unhappiness. Seeking wealth, social status, and fame is hardly a spiritual motivation, nor is arrogance, jealousy, or competition. To progress on the path to awakening, we need to begin with and maintain a sincere attitude that deeply cherishes others and that cares for ourselves in a healthy way without being self-indulgent or self-denigrating. So we can look at why we are even on this path. Because without sentient beings, why are bodhisattvas aspiring to become Buddhas? Buddhas. 
Let's let us see this review as part of our work to benefit sentient beings, to clarify our knowledge of the important aspects of the path to awakening, and motivating ourselves to put these teachings into practice so that true inner transformation can occur. evening. Uh, Venerable Children is still away traveling. She's in Malaysia right now. So we are continuing with the review of Approaching the Buddhist Path. So tonight uh, we'll be mainly reviewing chapters 6 and 7, uh, but we'll also have got one aspect of chapter 5 to look at um, that we didn't get to last week. Um, on the four Buddha bodies. And so um, you'll each have a handout on your table um, that is blank. <laughs> so we'll work our way through filling that in. Um, and so the four Buddha bodies, um, which you'll see are listed down the left-hand side, the emanation body, enjoyment body, wisdom truth body, and nature truth body, is one, as one way to divide um, the different aspects and manifestations of a Buddha that can help us understand the different qualities, the different manifestations, and the different roles that these Buddhas, that Buddhas play um, to benefit sentient beings and also the, how they have benefited themselves through their spiritual practice and attainments. Um, and as Venerable Children was saying in uh, when she was teaching this, that when we see this matrix of the four Buddha bodies, we can start to see how um, these qualities aren't scattered aspects of the Buddhas, but how they all relate to each other. Because these four bodies arise all at once at the same time when um, a being attains enlightenment. Hmm. So uh, hopefully um, there's microphones here, but also if you just want to call out to me, I can repeat it on the microphone so that it's recorded. Um, so if we want to start looking at the emanation body, uh, which is uh, yeah, the aspect that the Buddha, um, Buddha Shakyamuni came, um, that's the aspect that he was showing when he came here and was on earth. And so we have a, different columns here. So we're going to have a look at whether they're Arya Buddha or Buddha, what type of existent they are, what aspect of the Buddha jewel they are, and then the subdivisions and as subdivisions and aspects. And so, I've put down the bottom a definition of Buddha for you. <laughs> um, we went through this when uh, Venerable Chodron was teaching um, Precious Garland, uh, and there was an explanation that uh, Buddha is an ultimate quality that has arisen from its cause, the fulfillment of the two collections. And so here we're making a distinction between an Arya Buddha is a being, a, a person. So, and whereas a Buddha, an a qu ultimate quality that has arisen from its cause, the fulfillment of the two collections, isn't necessarily a person. They give the example that a Buddha's hand is Buddha, but it's not an Arya Buddha. Um, because it's a, because the Buddha's body is a manifestation of um, 
an ultimate quality that, is that has arisen from its cause, the fulfillment of the two collections. So as we go through these, we can explore which of these four bodies are actual Arya beings or Arya Buddhas, um, and which are just qualities that don't actually have the form of a person. So the, f the first one, um, I'll guide us through a bit more. We can see that in terms of Shakyamuni Buddha being in that form, he was an emanation body when he came to earth. We can see that that one would be an Arya Buddha. Um, yeah. And in terms of the type of existent, here we're going to look at the kind of two, sub two main subdivisions um, of the selfless or of all phenomena in the Buddhist worldview in terms of a functioning thing or permanent phenomena. And here again, we're making the distinction between, um, gets us to see the deeper qualities of these um, Buddha bodies. Because like, some of these are emptinesses, and emptiness is a permanent phenomena. So we can kind of see that. So here, what would um, an emanation body be? Impermanent thing or a permanent phenomena? Impermanent, a functioning thing. And what type of functioning thing of the three categories? An abstract composite, yeah, because it's a, because he's a person. So in, in terms of functioning things, we have three divisions of consciousness, matter, and abstract composites. And a person is an abstract composite, which we've been looking at this in some of our debate classes. Um, yeah. And what aspect of the Buddha jewel um, does the emanation body, is the emanation body? Because for all, for all the three jewels, there are two aspects. There's a conventional Buddha jewel, and then there's the ultimate Buddha jewel. And so here we have two of these are the conventional ultimate jewel, and two of these are the ultimate Buddha jewel. So what would, what would um, the emanation body be? Conventional Buddha jewel, yeah. Um, the, that wasn't, I don't actually know that too much. I tried to look for um, an explanation of that in the books, and I didn't actually explain that too much. It said what the conventional ultimate jewels were. The ultimate, the, both of the ultimate Buddha jewels are emptinesses. Um, no, that's not correct. One is an emptiness and one is a functioning thing. So, I don't know, do you know Venerable Tapa? Why? Yeah, no, I couldn't, I didn't find that when I was preparing. I wasn't in the book, so... And there's three different types of emanation bodies. Um, yeah, does any, um, anyone know that these three? Supreme emanation body, yeah. And can you give an example of that? Buddha Shakyamuni who turned the wheel of Dharma. Yes, qualified by the 32 marks and 80 signs of an you know, enlightened being and does the 12 deeds. And then there's two other um, types. An artisan emanation body. Um, yeah, there's stories of, in previous lives, of um, Buddhas manifested, manifesting as artisans, um, musicians, or potters, or different things like that, that they then have the capacity to connect with different types of sentient beings and bring them into the Dharma. And the last type of emanation body ordinary emanation bodies. So it's a diverse appearances of people and things. 
So this is where they say that the Buddhas can emanate as um, dogs, as different animals, as bridges, as different, any object that could benefit sentient beings. Um, so this starts to um, really broaden our scope of imagination around, you know, when, when they say that we, we are constantly surrounded by the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Um, there's various ways to understand that, understand that, but this is one of them where even very ordinary objects or ordinary people um, could be Buddhas. Okay. And then we'll move on to the enjoyment body. Um, yes. Yes, um, is this microphone? Venerable, how do the two compare, Arya, Buddha, and Buddha? There are four possibilities between Arya, Buddha, and Buddha. I think. What is a Buddha that, what is an Arya Buddha that's not a Buddha? Oh, so there we go to three possibilities. Oh, hmm. Yeah, three possibilities. Yeah. Hmm. Which way does the pervasion go? Whatever is an Arya Buddha is necessarily a Buddha, but whatever is a Buddha is not necessarily an Arya Buddha. Mm -hmm. And an example of a, a Buddha that is not an Arya Buddha? Buddha's finger. Buddha's finger, yeah. Because it's an ultimate quality that has arisen from its cause, the fulfillment of the two collections, but it's not a person. And an Arya Buddha is necessarily a person. Thank you. <laughs> um, now, so we'll go into the enjoyment body. And as we go down this list, we're getting into more and more subtle forms. Um, it's said that the an emanation body arises from the enjoyment body because um, it's more coarse. And when we were going through this with Venerable Children, I did ask if they arise simultaneously, how can one arise from the other? Because that kind of seems like it's sequential. And she said that they arise all at the same time, but the coarser one arises from the more subtle one. And there are times that, obviously, when a Buddha attains, a, at the moment that a being attains awakening, um, all these four arise at the same time, but later on, different emanation bodies will arise according to the needs of sentient beings. So, um, yeah, there's the initial emanation body that arises at the moment that a Buddha attains awakening, and then there's other emanation bodies that continuously manifest and emanate after that. So there can be many, many different types of emanation bodies, but with the enjoyment body, there's only one. Uh, and so is, would this be an Arya Buddha or just Buddha? So is this a person or is it just a quality? It's an Arya Buddha, yes, because it's a person, right. And is it a functioning thing, an impermanent phenomena, or is it um, a permanent phenomenon? Wonderful, exactly, yeah. So if, if it's a person, it's necessarily a functioning thing, momentary, changing moment by moment. And of the three types of functioning things, it's an abstract composite because it's a person. Great. And is it, a conven is it the conventional Buddha jewel or is it uh, the ultimate Buddha jewel? Conventional, yeah. So you can see that here the two conventional Buddha jewels are both persons. And so this, um, in the subdivisions or aspects, uh, I've listed the five definite features for you there. Now, this wasn't in the book, but Venerable mentioned them when she explained this. Um, and she, she didn't go into it much, but I, I looked it up and found it. So we have definite time, 
definite place, definite body, definite dharma, and definite retinue. So definite time means that they abide until the end of samsara. So, uh, yeah, the enjoyment body, the, the Buddha abides um, in his definite place um, permanently until the end of time. So does anyone have a guess for what that definite place is? A pure land, yeah. Yeah, each um, Buddha has their own Akanishta pure land. Yeah. And the definite body, I mentioned it already, it's the type of, the features of the body. Yeah, the 32 marks and 80 signs, yeah. Indefinite dharma. So this is the type of dharma that they teach. The Mahayana dharma, exactly. So um, enjoyment bodies specifically teach bodhisattvas in their pure land, and they teach exclusively the Mahayana dharma. Um, that's the dharma that will enable others to, that explains the path so that they too can attain awakening. And definite retinue. Um, Kind of already mentioned that, but yeah, that's the Arya Bodhisattvas. So only Arya Bodhisattvas are taught by Buddhas in these um, pure lands. So that gives a, a bigger, know, more fleshed out picture of what um, an enjoyment body of the Buddha is doing and how it looks like. Yeah. I find it helps to make these things a bit more tangible and can relate to them more. Hmm. So then we go on to the wisdom truth body. So we have two truth bodies here, um, wisdom truth body and the nature truth body. And so uh, these two we can kind of maybe, yeah. So wisdom truth body, is that a person or is it a, just a quality? Is it an Arya Buddha or just a Buddha or Buddha? Mm. It is there, it, it's the, it is their, their mind. Um, it's, it's, three, it's three qualities of the Buddha's mind, but it's not a person. So it's Buddha because it's an ultimate quality. Yeah. Yeah. So both, yeah, both um, the wisdom truth body and the nature truth body are just, are Buddha. They are not Arya beings because they're qualities of, um, yeah. And then we can see that, so we can see that these two being Buddha, that the two, um, and they're being more subtle than the other, the enjoyment body and the emanation body, that the two Aryan Buddhas arise from the more general characteristic. And so, so, yeah? The point I was trying to make earlier is that I think the first two are Arya Buddha and Buddha. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't say that the Buddha's mind is a quality. It's a consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. I so I think that word quality might be misleading. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just like the word body is misleading in this sense. It's we're not talking about a physical body. We're talking about like a collection. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I was working with the um I think that definition was in Precious Garland. So I was working with that, but the, you're right that the calling a mind a quality is is not how we usually talk about the mind. Yeah, thank you. So is this wisdom truth body um, a, a functioning thing or a permanent phenomenon? 
functioning thing. And of the three types, um, what is it? It's a consciousness. Yeah, the wisdom truth body is the consciousness, the mind of the Buddha. And is it the conventional Buddha jewel or the ultimate Buddha jewel? Ultimate Buddha jewel. And here we have, we can see um, for these two truth bodies, uh, one is the ultimate true path and one is the ultimate true cessation. So this wisdom truth body, um, is it the ultimate true path or ultimate true cessation? Yes, the ultimate true path. No, this is this was just look um, at the aspect of the Buddha jewel. So it's the ultimate Buddha jewel, and specifically, it's the ultimate true path. Yeah, and that makes sense. Path being a functioning thing and able to, yeah. Then we have the three qualities of the Buddha's mind, um, and we often talk about these three qualities and like in the um, Migse Ma, the um, Laman Song Kappa practice that we do, those three qualities are uh, represented by three different deities that embody these qualities. Um, does anyone know who these, uh, what these qualities are? Yeah, so omniscient knowledge, compassionate love and abilities or skillful means. So that we, we, uh, in the Migse Mao, the praise to Lama Tsongkhapa, it's like Manjushri represents the omniscient knowledge, Avalokiteshvara represents the compassionate love, and then we have Vajrapani representing the abilities or skillful means. And then we move to the nature truth body, um, which, as I mentioned before, is, is Buddha. And is this a permanent phenomena or an impermanent phenomena? It's permanent, yeah. And specifically, it's um, an, oh, sorry, I'll wait. Is it an ultimate Buddha jewel or conventional Buddha jewel? Ultimate, yeah. And specifically, it's an ultimate true cessation. So it's the emptiness of the Buddha's mind. So you can see as we, we go down, we've got more and more subtle. Um, so we, the last one is the emptiness of the Buddha's mind. And from within that emptiness then arises the, fun the functioning qualities of the Buddha's mind, and from there we have arises the enjoyment body, and from that we have arises the emanation body. And in the um, text, it goes through the, the forward and reverse order um, of these, and how that mm, rounds off our understanding of these four bodies, looking at it, how like you can go back and go forward and, and to see... Um, I think specifically the point that Venerable was making about the importance of looking at these for the reverse and forward order is that we can see that when the emanation body dies, the Buddha still exists um, because we still have the, the enjoyment body is still functioning in the Pure Land even though we can't see it. The wisdom truth body of the Buddha, the mind pervading all of these amazing qualities is still there and also the emptiness out of which that functioning mind arises is there. So it asks us to stretch our minds um, 
uh, about what the Buddha is and also to feel the inspiration that we are constantly um, surrounded by Buddhas and that even though we don't happen to be in the presence of Shakyamuni Buddha who, who died 2,600 years ago, um, he hasn't ceased to exist as many other Buddhas. Yeah. Yes. So Venerable Seppel was making this correction of saying this is a quality and that I get that doesn't work, but I'm wondering if you think you both you think that maybe we could describe that as an aspect of Buddha. Consciousness is these things as aspects. An ultimate aspect that has arisen from its cause. Of... No, just a well, I don't know. You were Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, and I think also on this um, sheet that, like what Venerable uh, Seppel was saying, that the first two would be Arya Buddha and Buddha. They're both, whereas the um, last two are only Buddha. They're not Arya Buddha. But yeah, I think I'm, I'm not too sure. So it's not, when you label this column, it's actually and or. Yeah, yeah it could be Arya Buddha and or Buddha, yeah. That's right. Because we're saying the first two are. Are you Buddha and Buddha? Yeah. And so then, arisen, say that part about arisen from its cause again. Um, yeah, that's the definition of what Buddha is, which I copied down. It should be at the bottom of the table. Right. An ultimate quality that has arisen from its cause, the fulfillment of the two collections. Right. So that's any aspect of... Ultimate quality. Yeah. Mm. Yes, Madam I, uh, I'd have to, I don't know if I have this exactly correct, but Buddha Jewel, for instance, the definition of Buddha Jewel is um, something like the consummate, uh, just a minute, uh, I just went blank. I hate it when that happens. Um, consummate source of refuge um, something like including any of the eight and there are these eight qualities and they include things like omniscient knowledge, compassionate love, mm -hmm. skillful means. Yeah, so quality there has a different connotation than what we're used to. Mm. Yeah. I think with all of these terms it's like very context-based. Uh, yes, a microphone. So under aspect of Buddha Jewel, conventional or ultimate, um, is conventional or ultimate referring to like the two truths, uh, like conventional depending on, dependent arising, ultimate, uh, excuse me, uh, ultimate being the way that, that things exist in lack of appearances and conventional being that things exist conventionally, is it related to that? I thought so, but then it can't be because the wisdom truth body, which is the ultimate Buddha jewel, is a functioning thing because it's a consciousness. But we can see that the nature truth body is an emptiness. So that divide there doesn't quite translate here. Um, but what else? Yeah. So I'm not. I'm not quite sure. I I looked in approaching the Buddhist path and in one teacher many traditions, and I didn't see an explanation of why we call these things conventional or ultimate in the case of the um, the Buddha jewel. Because in, in the Dharma jewel, it's more clear in terms of the conventional Dharma jewel is the scriptures and the, trend, the 
the transmitted and the realized, no, the scriptures and the, and the teachings, whereas the ultimate Dharma jewel is the uh, true path and cessation that you actualize in your own mind. So, um, but there again, we have true path and cessation, whereas paths are functioning things. So, um, dividing the, the conventional and ultimate jewels into conventional ultimate truths that divide, there's not a correlation there, I don't think, not cleanly. And then we have two divisions to the nature truth body. Um, does anyone know what they are? Yeah. So the first one is the natural stainless purity, uh, which is the emptiness of a Buddha's mind. And then we have um, the purity from adventitious defilements, which is the true cessations um, free from afflictive and cognitive obscurations. Yeah. And so they say that the natural stainless purity um, is our Buddha nature, the, the, the emptiness of the mind that um, is uh, the capacity then for us to attain awakening. Yeah. And then the purity from adventitious defilements is that's um, what we cultivate then to become a Buddha. Um, I, I wonder, I, I think the way you say it is that we have natural Buddha nature, mm -hmm. we have adventitious Buddha nature, mm -hmm. but I don't think you'd say we have natural purity yet, because I think mm -hmm. that's really referring to the quality in a Buddhist mind. That's right, because the emptiness of the Buddha's mind is not the same as the emptiness of our mind. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, so the emptiness of our mind is our Buddha nature, you would say, and then based on that The emptiness of the mind is called the natural Buddha nature. Okay, so we'll move on to chapter six. Um, and so in this chapter uh, is called Investigating the Teachings. And so the premise of this chapter is to look at the criteria by which we can learn to discern reliable teachings. And then based on that, understand those reliable teachings correctly so that we can then put them into practice and progress along the path. And so in the handout, let me just get that up. I found um, there was the story of the Kalamas, um, which I found quite inspiring, how there was a group of uh, people um, in a village um, somewhere at the Buddha's time, and they sought his counsel to figure out how they could discern reliable teachings because they'd had an influx of many different gurus who were teaching many different things, and they just didn't know which one was true and they wanted to. And so in a verse that um, is recorded in the Pali scriptures, the Buddha um, congratulates them, encourages them to be um, doubtful about things that are worthy of doubt um, and to use their discernment to um, analyze what to, hold, what to follow um, so they can achieve the happiness that they want. And then he gave a list of 10 flimsy reasons, um, which I think is um, His Holiness's words, um, that are not a solid foundation um, on which to accept spiritual teachings. And so I've listed them here. And I had to actually go to a dictionary to 
find out what some of these words were. So I copied in um, some things from the dictionary there as well because I didn't know what some of these terms were. But it's interesting to go through these and to see, um, for me, to see like, wow, I have based some of my practice on these 10 um, without much investigation. And that might have served me well so far in terms of is motivating me to practice and I've received some benefit. But this isn't a stable foundation, so I have to move beyond that. So we have, these are the flimsy reasons to, that aren't a solid foundation. We have repeated hearing, just because something's part of a tradition, even if it's a long-lasting tradition. Still not a good reason just to accept something blindly. Based on rumor, and based on what is in a scripture, and His Holiness clarifies that scripture can be used as a support for what we know through correct reasoning and not through surmise. And that was one of the ones I had to look up. And this is um, that we suppose something is true without having evidence to confirm it. It's like, oh yeah, that sounds about right. But we haven't necessarily looked into it deeply. Or not to accept something just because of an axiom. And I had to look this up again. So it's a statement or proposition that's regarded as being established, accepted, or self-evidently true. Um, so the axiom that uh, supply equals demand, things like that, that are just maybe culturally accepted or dogma. Yeah. And to not accept things because of spacious reasoning, um, specious reasoning, and that's something that's superficially plausible but actually wrong. So again, here we can see that um, some of these like were accepting things um, very surface level, not penetrating very deeply. And to not accept things just because of bias towards ideas that we've thought about. And Venerable often mentions this about, um, you know, we, we might have our own perspectives and we need to come and kind of with an open mind so that um, the, the lens that we come with doesn't cloud how we're interpreting things. Um, so here I kind of connected it to that, but, you know, if we have our own biases towards views that we've cultivated within this life or things, yeah, to um, not just work on that. And to not um, accept things just because of another's seeming ability. So we might there might be teachers who have spe special powers or particularly persuasive and charismatic, but that doesn't necessarily mean that what they're teaching is true. And to not accept things with the thought that this monk is our teacher. But I found very interesting because, um, yeah, to not just, the, again, the personality or the charisma of a teacher. Um, obviously, we, we cultivate uh, faith and just we discern what a, a, a true teacher is. But that, again, like this is pointing to, if we eliminate all this, if these are all not a solid foundation on which to just accept spiritual teachings, then what does that leave us with? And this is where um, His Holiness's like, deep emphasis on using reasoning and logic um, comes in. That um, yeah, like, you know, if, if we um, analyze the teachings that we receive um, and, we anal and we also examine the teacher who's teaching them, if they have like the 10 qualities of a qualified Mahayana teacher, um, that Venerable explains um, in Foundation of Buddhist Practice, the next volume. Like Through that, then we can have more confidence in saying, I accept this teaching based on 
the teacher who's teaching it. Um, it but we need to be, be engaging our um, intellect and reasoning as part of this. And so then, having um, eliminated these other options, um, the text goes on to discuss the three criteria to determine the authenticity of a teaching. And whilst not in the text, um, Venerable also mentioned another set of three that we can kind of look at these two um, in comparison. So these are the threefold, threefold criteria to determine the validity of a scripture in particular. And so here we can see that they're a little bit different, but there are um, some similarities. And so for the three criteria that to help us determine whether a teaching is authentic, we see that teachings given by the Buddha are, are accepted as reliable. And we validate commentaries and teachings given by later masters if they were at accord with the Buddha's word. And a teaching subjected to it and affirmed by logical scrutiny of great masters can also be accepted as authentic. And that teachings practiced and realized by great Mahasiddhas are authentic. So I'd read something from the text that I found flesh this out a little bit more. As His Holiness says, We can compare a teaching to the texts that are commonly accepted by everyone in either the Theravada or the Mahayana traditions as authentic. And if their meaning is compatible, they may be accepted as accurate. For example, in the Mahayana tradition, texts by Nagarjuna, Arya Sangha, Shantideva, Chandrakirti, and Dhammakirti are commonly accepted as accurate explanations of the Buddha's word. These works of the great masters have already been proven to be reliable because they've been investigated by sages and the Mahasiddhas have attained realizations by depending on them. So this analysis cannot be made on the basis of words alone, but must include meaning. For example, the terminology in various tantric commentaries may differ considerably from that of the root texts. However, if, if their meaning accords with the root texts, the commentaries can be accepted as reliable. So here this points um, strongly to the emphasis on the lineage um, of the teachings being passed down and actualized by various um, spiritual practitioners, um, and also the need to look deeply and beyond superficialities um, in terms of differences in terminologies and things like that. And then we go to the threefold analysis to determine the validity of a scripture we see that there's a slightly different emphasis, um, whereas before it's looking at the um, authenticity of other practitioners having validated these, whereas here we're looking to um, use our own intellect to examine um, the validity of the teachings. And so we can see in the first point we have, um, can the scripture's presentation of evident phenomena be refuted by direct perception? So this is asking us to see whether evident phenomena, things that we can see directly, does what the scriptures teach, does it contradict what we know through our sense perception? And then the second is, can the scripture's presentation of slightly obscure phenomena be refuted by inference? 
So the slightly obscure phenomena is things that we can't directly see, but we can know through reasoning. And so um, this would be like such as emptiness. We can't know it directly with our sense perceptions, but we can um, analyze it, know it through reasoning at first before we get to a direct perception. And so do the scriptures contradict what we know through inference? And then the third one has two aspects, but it, they relate to each other. And it's asking to look at um, whether the implicit, explicit, and implicit meaning of very obscure phenomena are free from contradiction. And are the scriptures, former and later passages of the presentation of very obscure phenomena free from contradiction? And very obscure phenomena are things like karma that are um, hard to, we have no way to know the subtle aspects of that on our own through reasoning. Yes, we have to rely on the scriptures to accept these things until we gain later realizations on the path. And what was interesting that in the presentation of this is Venerable emphasized that we really need to focus on the first two of these. Um, the, the, our examining direct phenomena and examining slightly obscure phenomena and how they, what we know through these and how they relate to the scriptures. Because she said that if we just focus on the last two, we'll get into a bit of a head trip. <laughs> um, because if we go to three to validate a scripture, then without going to the commentaries and looking at our own experience, uh, relying on the scriptures in this way, kind of like looking at, does this paragraph correlate with this paragraph? It's not a, not a steady foundation for our understanding. Whereas if we put energy into studying the commentaries and seeing how other masters have digested the material and then meditate on it ourselves and see whether it's true in our own experience and do we benefit from it, then we have a much stronger basis on which to accept the root texts. Yeah, that's the exact point that um, His Holiness makes in this section as well, saying that the Buddha was a very skillful teacher and that he taught different material to different um, students according to their capacity of what would benefit them in that moment. And so that then we have to be um, skillful audience now as well to discern what are the provisional teachings and what are the definitive teachings. And also to, um, in, in the text, it says to differentiate what was the common teachings for the general public and what was the unique teachings for specific individuals. Because um, even with uh, modern day teachers, they will, teach, they will teach students different things according to their disposition that they know will help them. So to discern, like, was this teaching for me? Um, does that suit me? Um, And the rest of chapter six um, kind of continued on this uh, topic of investigating the teachings. And the third subdivision of this chapter was looking at treasure teachings and pure vision teachings. So um, tremors or tertures or treasure teachings are teachings um, that uh, can, be, can be traced back to the Buddha. Um, but there has to be a process of validating that because not all teachings that arise in this way, um, they are teachings that were hidden um, by, they weren't appropriate for the audience at the time. And so they were hidden 
Um, and then we have Turtons, or people who discover these teachings at a later time. Um, they appear to their mind, or they find a text itself that's been hidden. It's said that Padmasambhava um, in Tibet was hid many of these uh, termas or turchos. And then he also prophesied um, the Turtons or the discoverers that would come at later times and discover them. So there could be um, a lot of um, inconsistency here of like what is true Turton or someone just coming forth and saying, hey, I've discovered something fantastic. That's not really um, true. So again, uh, you know, they say that you know this is largely in the Tibetan tradition, and that there is not an official council that's appointed to um, discern whether this is true or not. But there are methods, such as an authoritative master comments about whether this um, terma, this treasure teaching, is true or not, taking into account three things. Whether the Chotun was prophesied by either the Buddha or Padmasambhava, mostly it was by Padmasambhava. Whether the t teaching correlates with other authentic terma teachings that have been discovered before. And just the general character of the Chotun, um, the dis treasure discoverer. So, and then there was also the pure vision teachings, um, and this is where um, deities appear to highly realized practitioners and then teach them directly. Um, yeah, and and there's examples of many of the Dalai Lamas um, themselves have the fifth, the first, and the second um, had these pure visions, and some of the I think the Chidamani Tara practice is what is. Um, one of those treasure teachings that His Holiness talks about. And then we can determine whether these, these are authentic or not by seeing whether they are called with the original teachings of the Buddha. Yeah. And there was a, a section on exaggerated statements, <laughs> such as if you say this mantra once, you'll be liberated for, from however many eons of um, Hell Realm rebirths. And so His Holiness points us to use the criteria mentioned above to determine whether these teachings are authentic or not. But he also points to common sense, to use our common sense to understand if these statements are accurate, if they are understood literally. And I thought I'd read a passage um, that fleshes it out very nicely. For example, statements in some scriptures say that if we, by reciting a particular mantra once, one will never be reborn in an unfortunate realm, or one will attain awakening easily. If such statements were literally true, there will be no need for the Buddha to teach us to avoid destructive actions and create constructive ones. If we could be reborn in a pure land by reciting a few mantras, why would the Buddha spend so much time teaching the importance of counteracting ignorance and afflictions by applying the antidotes to them? If we could gain realization simply by reciting mantras, the Buddha would not have taught the three high trainings and the cultivation of method and wisdom. We can see that such statements are not consistent with the Buddha's teachings in other scriptures. Therefore, we should, cannot take these statements literally. Reciting mantras must be conjoined with other virtuous practices to bring the desired results. So why does the scripture say this? In part, the benefits of reciting a mantra were extolled to inspire certain people who are embarking on the practice. 
So here again, it's calling us to yeah use our common sense and our wisdom and our analysis and, and to really understand the context in which the teaching is being given. So then um, there's last two last three last sections which I'll cover quickly of of chapter six. One was um, correctly understanding the point, which is elaborations of um, this idea of using reasoning, and then explanation of can the Dharma change. And this is asking us to differentiate between um, what His Holiness says is the challenge is to differentiate between the packaging and the essence. The packaging of the teaching in terms of the culture, cultural um, way in which the teaching is received and then practiced, and then the essence of the teaching itself. And he points to the essence being the three principal aspects of the path and the four truths, whereas the packaging is the exter external cultural forms of Buddhism. And he gives us a big caution here, particularly in the context of Buddhism coming into the West, that if we change the fundamentals, then they're no longer the teachings of the Buddha, and that the future enlightenment of the generations who will receive those teachings is then rendered impossible. Which I found like a big wall um, to really caution around um, making any quick changes to, uh, what does he say? He says, thoughtfulness care and slow change are preferable to a rush to make Buddhism more attractive to the present public. Yeah. And he acknowledges that in some areas that um, Buddhism has a lot to learn in terms of neuroscience and how the mind relates to um, the physical brain. Um, but then he says other topics described by the Buddha are, are as relevant today as they were thousands of years ago in terms of the processes by which the afflictions arise and then the antidotes to apply to them. Like they're uh, not culture-bound. They're as, you know, the way the objects of attachment or the objects of anger might be different in terms of attachment. We, we now have a whole array of technology that wasn't present um, when the Buddha was alive. But the way that the attachment arises and functions and the antidotes to it are the same. And to, to round off the chapter, he closes on with a section called Being Practical. And I guess this, for me, it, it seemed to signal the um, need to, like we're wanting to use our analysis and discern what the correct teachings are, but to not get caught up so much in the reason that we don't put things into practice and see its benefit. And he uses the analogy of like, wanting us to not be the person with an arrow in the chest that is bleeding profusely, but we're going to refuse treatment until we know all the credentials of the doctor that's going to treat us. Wanting to know their name, where they got their degree from, what caste they're from, all these other um, details. That, that There's a scripture that this is from, hence the reference to caste. But yeah, rather, you know, if we think, I will not practice the Dharma until all my questions have been answered and all my doubts have been resolved, then His Holiness says that this life will end and no practice will have been done. So we need to balance this um, need to verify what are the true teachings, which is very important, but also to you know, put things into practice and try them out, and then through our own experience we will see the benefit. Or the lack of benefit, and then be able to also discern that the authenticity that way. Okay. So we move on to chapter seven. And this is the, impo the importance of kindness and compassion. And so here, 
this uh, chapter, uh, we'll have a look at this in two parts. So the first part of the text, um, this chapter covers topics of a peaceful mind, the importance of motivation, cult and cultivating a compassionate intention. And so here I thought I would cover some of these points um, through leading us in a, in a meditation. And uh, yeah, the text kind of, His Holiness starts with this, from, from the beginning of the Buddhist path until the end, each practice is aimed at developing virtuous qualities of mind. So we'll explore this. So you can get into a comfortable meditation position. So when teaching this, Venable asked us to look at the difference between short and long-term motivations. So check up in your own experience. When your motivation is seeking just the happiness of this life, are you left feeling restless and dissatisfied? What long-term motivations can touch your heart to enthuse your practice? And we might have the long-term goal of awakening, or long-term motivation of attaining awakening. But think of some sub-motivations that, that can help you enact this big goal in day-to-day -day life. So some sub-motivations might be giving up the self-centered thought, or paying the kindness of mother sentient beings, or living my life in the framework of the four immeasurables. Find some that resonate with you.
and then to bring this right down into the moments of our day. Look at what aspects of your day you know you regularly run on automatic. Maybe certain tasks that you do or certain times of the day or different activities that you know that you forget to either set or check in on your motivation for doing it. How can you build in a compassionate habit, a moment of reflection, or some sort of ritual that can remind you to set your motivation, to set your mind in virtue?
anyone like to share anything from that meditation? No problem, still percolating. Okay. So the last two sections of chapter seven are on mind training. The first section called mind training is just in general. And then the last section goes through the eight verses of mind training, a text that we recite every week at the Abbey. Um, It's our Sunday recitation after our meals. And it's by Langri Tampa. Um, And in the text, His Holiness says that he recites this verse every day, um, sometimes multiple times if he's in places like airports or different situations where he has time to sit and reflect, um, particularly on others. And so on the handout, you'll see um, a table that needs filling out. And it has the eight verses there for you. And so what I thought we could do is that um, we're in, we could split up into pairs for maybe uh, five or ten minutes-ish. And together you can brainstorm. Um, and you've got your text. Many of you have your text. I've got another book upstairs I can go get. And to identify within each of the verses, what's the main affliction that's being targeted here that we're trying to work with and eliminate? What's the antidote that's being applied to that? Um, and there's sometimes a very, sometimes one or two, or so we can, it's not just one um, necessarily. And then obstacle to avoid, I couldn't quite figure out the right wording for that, but there's different ways that we can misinterpret either the exact words in the verse or the general idea there. So you want to get clear about how to not think um, in terms of this. Um, it would be helpful if I, I did one example of the first one to start. Okay. So with the first verse um, is... Hello. <laughs> um, is with the thought of attaining awakening for the welfare of all beings who are more precious than a wish fulfilling jewel, I will constantly practice holding them dear. And so the main affliction that is being targeted in this verse is, self, is self-centeredness or self-absorption. And so seeing ourselves as being more important than others and prioritizing our own welfare. And so the antidotes that are applied here, um, as we can see in the verse, is, is, reflecting, is um, reflecting on the advantages of cherishing others. And on the flip side of that is also to look at the, the disadvantages of self-preoccupation or self-centeredness. And in the commentary that His Holiness and Venerable Children gave is also reflecting on the kindness of others because this warms our heart to see how others are precious in terms of both our everyday happinesses, all the food that we eat, the clothes that we wear are all due to the kindness of others, but also the kindness of those who are our enemies, who show us where our buttons are. So like that. And the obstacle to avoid here is um, thinking that the point um, of this verse is to, for us to develop guilt or unworthiness. Because um, His Holiness refers to some of the thought training um, idea of, or the quote that says, disregard yourself and cherish others. 
So the point is not to think that we're unworthy or to completely discard our own happiness. Um, but it's more to see things in a balanced perspective that we're just one of we're one of many. So that's the kind of thing that we're looking for for the rest of the chart. So if you want to break up into pairs and go through this, and then we can come back together. I'll ring the bell, and then we'll come back together and we'll share what we found. It's about 10 minutes, so in, in light of time, we can continue. We can go through these together and brainstorm, but yeah, it's rich. Yeah. Okay. Um, if you, if you want to, um, you can just call out and I can repeat, or if you want to have the microphone either way. Um, so going, so that was number two. And uh, online, uh, Tugje has given some answers. She said, the affliction is arrogance. The antidote is seeing that we have all learned from all that we, to see all that we have learned comes from others. And she wasn't sure about the obstacle to be avoided. Yeah, that's what I have as well. And denigrating ourselves and succumbing to low self-esteem. Yeah. So to not see that, to not take literally, I guess, seeing yourself as the lowest of all in terms of um, seeing ourselves as... She wasn't sure. Oh, her antidote was um, seeing that all we have learned comes from others. I guess it ties into I had um, appreciation and respect. Yeah. Anyone else? Any? Yeah, seeing ourselves and others as equal in wanting happiness and not wanting suffering. Yeah. Great. For number three, um, Cheryl online has said, uh, realizing that our actions affect ourselves and others, that our actions could lead to someone wanting to harm us. Hence, they create negative karma and one antidote is mindfulness. Mindfulness of motivation and actions from moment to moment. Yeah, so what, what afflictions did um, people have for number three? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, all the afflictions. And the key antidotes? Yeah, exactly. Mindfulness, introspective awareness. And I found it... Interesting that His Holiness said, as introspective awareness to identify the afflictions as soon as they arise and mindfulness to recall their faults. Then with these tools, we'll have the motivation to exercise restraint. So it's mindfulness specifically to recall their faults, which again challenges that idea that that, that secular mindfulness or the um, marketed mindfulness is not just bare attention, it's really mindfulness of something with a very specific purpose here. And the obstacle to avoid? Yeah, that's what I have. Yes. Or over application of the antidotes. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. And I, th- I think in the text it was mentioned pretending that the afflictions don't exist <laughs> was another um, obstacle to avoid. Suppressing them or just pretending that they're not arising. <laughs> Um, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and so for number four, what would be the, 
afflictions being targeted. Yeah, aversion, anger and aversion. Yeah. And the antidote to be applied? Loving kindness, compassion, patience. Yeah, fortitude. Yeah. Yeah. Fortitude, compassion, and empathy. The ones that His Holiness mentioned. Um, specifically, um, he was also asking us, like, can we restrain our disdain for people who appear hateful and offensive and instead hold them dear? Yeah, can we generate empathy for them and compassion for their situation that's causing them to act in harmful ways yeah, and have the fortitude or the patience to endure these difficult situations? And the obstacle to be avoided? Bias, yeah, and I think... St- um, it wasn't in, in the commentary, it wasn't clearly identified, but I thought stuffing emotions, like just kind of suppressing things as well, like kind of being patient, or, but kind of forcing oneself there without really applying an answer, kind of just like, you know, stuff the anger or the aversion without really addressing it. Yeah. Okay, and number five. What would be the affliction targeted there? Someone was, when others out of jealousy mistreat me with abuse, slander, and so on, I'll practice accepting defeat and offering the victory to them. Mm, defensiveness, yeah? Anything else? Yeah. Anger and resentment. And what are the antidotes to be applied? Humility. Patience, compassion. And tolerance and acceptance. Yeah. And what would be the obstacle to avoid here? Being a huge doormat, yep. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what His Holiness said, making ourselves a doormat. And there's an- another aspect of it, of the obstacle to be avoided as well, which was accepting the wrongdoings of others. But accepting defeat and offering the victory doesn't mean that we accept the wrongdoings of others, but rather it means, um, it's very interesting, the specific offering, accepting the v- defeat and offering the victory is to let go of our anger and resentment. Offering the victory to others was in that context. And number six, when I have benef- when someone I have benefited and in whom I have placed great trust hurts me very badly, I'll see that person as my supreme teacher. What's the affliction targeted here? Pride, revenge, yeah, anger, yeah. And the antidote? Gratitude could be one. Any others? Forgiveness was the big one that um, was in the commentary. Forgiveness and then also reflections on karma, that we have created the cause um, for this harm to be coming our way, the kind of the wheel of sharp weapons are turning upon us, um, and that if we don't want to be hurt by others and we need to stop creating the causes for that to happen, 
Yeah, and to also look at what forgiveness means. Um, yeah, in terms of it doesn't mean that we condone the actions of others. Um, and that kind of leads to the obstacle to be avoided here. Yeah, I don't settle. Microphone. Yeah. I was going to add humility because when someone hurts us very badly and we we get to see how we respond to that, like mm. there's an expectation or, um, yeah, and so that person is showing us where we are in our practice and that's yeah. a real benefit. Yeah. 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 And the pitfall here is thinking that we have to condone the actions of others. Um, yeah, that which we don't have to just because we don't retaliate or get angry doesn't mean that what they're doing is right. It just means that we're responding to it in a kind, compassionate way. Um, yeah. And in the commentary to this venerable asked us that is our practice only at the level of the mouth? Um, as when we're hurt, do we say, why me? Or when we're hurt, do we say, what an opportunity to practice? She says that if we're spiritually mature, we can see these situations as big opportunities to, to advance on the, on the path, as opposed to situations to have a big pity party. So, something to aspire to. <laughs> um, so seven, in short, I will offer directly and indirectly every benefit and happiness to all beings, my mothers. I'll practice in secret, taking upon myself all their harmful actions and sufferings. So what's the affliction targeted here? Self-centeredness. I'm oh, sorry, was, um, you both spoke at the same time. Tennis is self-centeredness. Venerable Seppel? Same. Yeah. And what are the antidotes applied? Tong Len, yeah. Practice of love and compassion, taking and giving. Mm -hmm. And what would be the obstacle to avoid here? Yeah. Being overwhelmed, Venerable mentioned that in, in, in terms of, she um, mentioned two aspects. So not making, she says, don't make the practice of Tonglen so abstract that you feel holy doing it. So that it's kind of just like this wonderful thing of sending lights and, and um, taking on the suffering and giving all that you want and you feel really good at the end of it, but it hasn't actually touched that self-centeredness. But also to not make it so solid that we're afraid to do it, which I think links into your idea of being overwhelmed. Like, oh, I can't take on this suffering because you've made it too concrete. Um, yeah. Rather, she encourages that um, make it really practical and down to earth. Like, you know, may the stomach ache that I have right now suffice for all the pain of others. Um, and then may they have, you send them all that they need to have ease and relief, the ease and relief that you want right now. Um, and remind yourself that it's just a visualization, so why not try it out? Yeah. And then the last is um, number eight. Without these practices being defiled by the stains of the eight worldly concerns, by perceiving all phenomena as illusory, I will practice without grasping to release all beings from the bondage of disturbing unsubdued mind and karma. The antidote, I mean the, the affliction targeted. Eight worldly concerns. And the antidote, yeah, understanding emptiness and... Uh, his Holiness recommends specifically doing that through reflecting on dependent arising and interdependence. 
because that will help us to av to avoid two obstacles, which would be if we if we understand emptiness through reflecting on it by dependent arising and interdependence, that helps us avoid um, some obstacles that might come up. Yeah, the two extremes of nihilism and absolutism. Yeah, do you want to get the microphone? What is the difference between interdependence and dependent arising? <laughs> I don't know. I was a bit, I, I when I was um, reading that, I wondered what this, the subtlety of the point that he was making there. I'm not sure. Um, because sometimes those terms are used interchangeably for translations, so I'm not sure. Um, it's a, you ask, is, is interdependence one aspect of dependent arising? I'm not sure. I really have no idea. Um, it be a question for His Holiness one time in teachings, or question for Venerable when she gets back. I'm not sure. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for bearing with me. <laughs> We're going quite a long time, but... Yeah, there's so much to cover in these chapters. It's um, amazing. But it's nice to be going through so much so we can really have a good, nice look at this book before we start with Foundation of Buddhist Practice when Venerable returns.